Hello, and welcome back to SciSection. I'm your journalist, Amy Stewart, for the SciSection radio show broadcasted on CFMU 93.3 FM radio station. We are here today with Dr. Paul Corkum, a professor of physics at the University of Ottawa, a principal research officer at the National Research Council of Canada, and the co-winner of the esteemed Wolf Prize. Thank you for coming on the show today, Dr. Corkum. Oh, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. So to start us off, give us an introduction of who you are, your education, and your career background. Well, I'm Paul Corkum. Um, I'm from St. John, New Brunswick. I don't know if anybody in your audience is from New Brunswick, but I'm from St. John, New Brunswick. Um, I went to St. John High School, where I met a physics teacher, which influenced me, and that's why I'm a physicist. Um, so after St. John, I went to Acadia University in Nova Scotia, where I did my undergraduate work, and then I took off to the big USA, to Lehigh University. It's a modest-sized university in Pennsylvania, Bethlehem, as a matter of fact, and uh, I did my PhD, master's and PhD in Bethlehem. And then I came to National Research Council, where I've sort of been ever since. I'm partly at the University of Ottawa now, so um, maybe not quite ever since, but in 2008, I made this jump, but I have a lab also at National Research Council still. That's very great. I think our, our teachers always tend to inspire us when we're picking our career paths. Oh, it's amazing the inf influence that a teacher can have on you, and especially at this age. It's amazing, yeah, absolutely. So much of your research focuses on the field of attosecond science, which is a field of physics you pioneered and contributed to so significantly that you won the Wolf Prize in physics this year. And uh, for those who don't know, the Wolf Prize is a highly prestigious award which rewards achievements in the interest of mankind and friendly relations among people. So Dr. Corkum, what is attosecond science and what is some of the work and research you've been doing in this field that has led to your winning of the Wolf Prize? Well, let me start out by saying what an attosecond is because it'll really make your, your listeners just amazed. So an attosecond is a billionth of a billionth of a second. In other words, take one second and divide it into a billion pieces and then take one of those billion pieces and divide it once more into a billion pieces. So it's a billionth of a billionth of a second. It's incredibly short. Um, I'd like to tell people an attosecond is to a minute as a minute is to the age of the universe. So that's really short, right? And that's slightly overstating attoseconds, even a little shorter than that, but not much. I think on that level, it's okay to make an error. Um, so if you think about, sometimes you hear about nanotechnology and nanotechnology is about space. So it's not, not like time, but a nanometer is a billionth of a meter. So we're talking about something a billion times smaller with respect to a second than a nanometer is to a meter. So that's amazing again. And you might say, what, nothing ever happens so fast, who cares? But you know, we're all held together by electrons, everything in us, every molecule, every piece, every chair you sit on, everything is held together by electrons making bonds and things like that. So electrons are really light. They only go little short distances and the forces on them are really strong. So in other words, we can sit on the chair. So um, things happen really fast in the worlds of electrons. And so we study electrons. Um, let me tell you how to make an out-of-second pulse. I can do it by analogy, okay. So uh, I'm from New Brunswick, I told you, right by the ocean. So you can think about a piece of seaweed attached to a rock. 
and think of the waves coming in. The waves are waves of water, in the case of seaweed. In the case of light, it's a wave of light, or it's a wave of electric forces on a charged particle, but it's a wave. So I'm going to use a wave of light from a laser, just like a wave of water in the charge uh, in the seaweed. Now the seaweed, it bounces up and down in the water. The go, as it goes up and down, it's still attached to the rock, but it bounces up and down. And so my electron would like to back bounce up and down too, but it's sort of stuck to the atom, so it can't get away. But if I make it strong enough and I pull hard enough, I pull it free. And so my electron bounces up just like a piece of seaweed and bounces down. And when it bounces down, it bashes into the atom from which it left or the seaweed bashes into the rock from which it left. And in that bash, in that banging into it, it gives out a burst of light. And that burst of light is an atocycle. Now that sounds really unlikely to be important, doesn't it? I mean, it seems so, uh, so incredibly in, uh, unlikely. But it turns out that you can make real pulses that are the fastest things that we as humans can control. And you make them in this way. And you can make them bright enough to do important measurements with them. Um, so that's how you make an out-of-second pulse. So always remember seaweed. And next time you go to the Maritimes, take a look at the, a piece of seaweed in a rock, and you'll think about this, right? So now, what, what do we do? Well. Um, you might say, uh, let's take a look at an electron. Let's send, let's bring this electron out that I'm going to send back again, like the seaweed coming out and I'm coming back on the rock. And that seaweed, if I looked at it really carefully, I would say something about the rock that it into it smashed up this way, all out in different ways. And so I can take a look at the atom from which, or molecule maybe, or solid from which the electron came, I can see something about it. And actually, it's less obvious to see, but I can even see the electron and I can see what it looks like. I can get a picture of it. Um, so maybe you can get sort of a vision of that from the, the seaweed crashing into the rock and you know, splattering all around and things like that as it comes in. So that's what we can do is we can study electrons. We can see them under some circumstances. We can see how fast they move. And um, well, the, in a real atom, there are all kinds of electrons in the center. And the ones that determine the chemistry, they're at around the edge. And so we can even study some of the centered ones. So that's, uh, I mean, that's an awful lot of stuff that we can study. That's pretty fascinating. I really like the analogy you use. It makes it a lot easier to, to visualize something that's so incredibly small and unfathomable. That's definitely a good way to put it. Uh, what do you think the future of this field looks like? Uh, and what are some potential applications of attosecond science? Oh, wow. It's, uh, there are so many different futures. Um, when we started out, so I got this Wolf Prize for work I did some time ago. When we started out, it was something that sort of happened in atoms and, and you know, it was really short. So we knew, I knew it was important, but it was kind of specialized in a way. You know, you didn't think it was going to be really, really, really important. But over time, we learned that, well, you're not only atoms, but really it could happen in molecules. And not only molecules, but it happened in solids. And so this sort of became almost every material when you irradiate it with strong light behaves this way. So its importance sort of grew and grew and grew. 
So you can study all of these materials, atoms, molecules, and solids, which is just about everything. Um, we can use these short light pulses. And in solids, it can sort of go together with some of the other things that we as scientists, not me, but other people are learning to do in solids to make, um, oh, you know, you can pattern solids, you can make all kinds of electronics and solids and things like that. And so for different reasons, we can pattern solids and focus the light. So I think it will be used to study atoms, molecules, and solids, which is just about every, uh, especially at this very fast time scale. And, and every one of them, there's something fast. But also, um, these provide a platform in which to make better pulses that can be used for other things. One thing that's really interesting to think about is, um, you know, we, you and I are made up of cells and these cells are, they're really small, but you know, COVID-19 goes into your cell and takes over a system and reproduces itself and gives out lots more antibodies. And you might like to know what's happening inside the cell. So maybe we can go inside cells and look really highly precisely at different places in cells and see what's indifferent, what's in the center, what's outside, what's near the mitochondria, things like that. And so maybe there's less obvious things that will also be important from this become because of the source, because of the short wavelength of the source and short and very fast time scale of the source. So, I mean, almost everywhere you look, there's a possibility. You don't know where to look first, but I'm trying to do some work on the subcells. So that's one of the things. That's fascinating how it ties into biology and could have future applications in studying diseases and the inner workings of like cells and human body and all that. That's very cool when you see different branches of science come together like that. Well, you think about it, I mean, you're made up of molecules and atoms. And so there are all kinds of sizes inside your body that goes all the way from the size of your body to the size of uh, a mitochondria inside your inside the cell. And so you have to have abilities to look at each of these scales. And uh, this gives an ability to look at the smallest scale in space and in time. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? That is very exciting. So for my next question, uh, so as a researcher and a professor, what is one of the most important lessons that you've learned over your career? I don't know if this is a lesson. I mean, I, I guess the way I do science is I sort of have this picture this image maybe of where I want to go and what is important to do in the long run. And then, uh, but of course I have to make day-to-day -day, or one makes day-to-day -day decisions. You, you do this experiment, you do that one, or you do that one. You have to select. And so I keep this long-term vision, but it's always tactics in which experiments you actually do. Um, I, I tell you what's maybe more interesting. Let me tell you what I've learned about science from maybe my wife, who's a writer, right? Um, so she um, had a contract one time to write about a scientific organization. And she went to it. I wasn't there. She went to it. And these scientists, she felt, were speaking so frankly to each other. And how did they not get insult, insult each other when they spoke to each other? Because if you were in a business meeting and you spoke like this, a person would be insulted and go to the room and, and never speak to you again. And so I began to think about this and I thought there's a big difference between the world of science 
and other things. Um, so when you get into discussion in science, you have to say what you think, and you think it's right, and there's a way to know it's right. Did Newton figure it out, or did Einstein figure it out, or go down and do an experiment or something like that? There's, a, there's always a right answer, almost. And so you learn to uh, listen to other people's views. Change your views if you have to, because if you don't, you're going to be proven wrong, so you better change them fast. Change your views if you have to. And, uh, and listen and not take offense. And I think in science, you sort of learn not to take offense and to say things pretty clearly and to listen carefully to what the other person says, because they might be right, and, uh, and you know, make an adjustment. So I think it's a different kind of world. And in that, guy, in that way, otherwise, it's not so much different. But in that way, it's a different kind of world than, say, business or I don't know what. My wife is an artist, so or a writer, so then writing, for example, where there's no exactly right answer. But in science, there's almost always there's almost always a right answer or a procedure to find out what the right answer is. That is some very good advice. I, I think you make a great point. Is science is a lot more of a teamwork effort than we kind of realize, and every great discovery and invention is based off ten more, and it's with the collaboration of so many people that we get some of the great technology we have today. Yeah, this is another thing about writers, if you, if you like it. You, you think about you know, great literature, but they're always written by individuals, almost almost always, almost never by a team. I mean, and almost no science is done by an individual, almost always by a team. And so you have these people, scientists, maybe kind of isolated people, maybe one thinks of them as less gregarious than people in the arts, and I think it's true. But on the other hand, they work in a very gregarious um, profession where discussion and debate is, and speaking and writing are really a great deal of what it's about. Uh, where writers are gregarious people in an ungregarious profession, sitting there day after day in front of their computer and working by themselves. There's quite the juxtaposition there. So for my last question, uh, physics is a very daunting field. Uh, so what would you say to encourage students to pursue working in physics? I think there are only very few ideas in physics, and they're repeated everywhere. I mean, I, ta I talked about water waves, and I talked about light waves. And I could think about, and I could give you a good analogy for how atosecond pulses are made by you just thinking about going to the coast or going down to the Ottawa River and, uh, and just imagining a, a water wave. And I think that's often the case in physics, that it's... Uh, a few simple ideas that are repeated over and over, maybe made seem, seem complicated by mathematics. I don't mean to say that one should leave out mathematics. It gives physics tremendous power because it can use mathematics for predicting. But the ideas underlying physics are, you know, really simple, really. So I don't think you should be, one should be daunted by physics. Physics can be, seem daunting for the language, and it seems daunting because of the, the mapping onto mathematics. But physics itself, the ideas are simple. I think you make a great oh. point. There's probably a lot of patterns that we could analyze that may carry out to the themes of physics. But I also think it takes a great teacher like yourself to come up with these analogies to make it seem a lot more realistic. I mean, something like an attosecond is so small and unthinkable. But when you compare it to something like seaweed and a wave, it, it seems so much more real and like present. 
Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Corkum. It was fascinating to hear about your career and the amazing work that you're doing in physics. And congratulations on your award. I can't wait to see what Attosecond Science has in store for the future of physics. Thank you. Thank you for calling me. That's it for this week of SciSection. I'm your journalist, Amy Stewart, and make sure to check out our podcast available on global platforms for our latest interviews.